The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, well, it is uh, good to be back with y'all. For those of you who don't know, uh, my family and I were, were out of town uh, last weekend. Um, unfortunately, on, on Monday, uh, we found out Melissa's Aunt Kathy uh, died suddenly in her sleep. And so uh, by Wednesday, we found ourselves flying up to central Wisconsin. And uh, by Friday, I found myself doing the, the first funeral I've ever done. And so it was uh, a good learning experience for me and, and, uh, and did that. But I want to say thank you, especially to those of you that, that covered for us and stepped up uh, while we were gone. Really appreciate that. And a, a special thank you to uh, Grant Carey, who just walked out. Uh, I should say the new doctor, Grant Carey, though. He just finished his dissertation. So if you get a chance, give him a high five. Uh, so, but uh, thanks to him for covering for me. Um, I asked him to pinch hit on very short notice. So I'm very grateful that, that he was doing that. And I heard it was, it was a wonderful message. So if you missed it, get online, check out the podcast, and, uh, and listen to it. I've heard, heard great things. In fact, I think my job might be in jeopardy. There's kind of rumors going around about that. Um, but it really is good. To, that was a joke. Not enough people laughed. That makes me nervous. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, it is good to be back, and, and we miss y'all. And I'm excited for us to, to get back into this series as we dig into the book of Isaiah. We, we took a detour last week because I really I let Grant know pretty last minute. And, and so I said, you know what, man, just go with something from your wheelhouse, and we'll pick up Isaiah as, as we get back here. And so we're, we're back in Isaiah. And, uh, and so we're going to dig into it. And just uh, I want to give a reminder of the context of this book, though, okay? So Isaiah is a book in the Old Testament uh, written by the prophet Isaiah. And, and a prophet, as, as we talked about the first week, is, is someone who speaks God's truth into a situation. And so Isaiah is the, the man of the hour for the Old Testament people. He's the guy, the people of Israel, that's going to speak God's truth into their situation. And as you recall, their situation is actually pretty rough. Uh, their nation is divided north and south. You have Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And so they're split. They're, they're angry at each other. Two different kings for one nation. It's a mess. And then at the same time, their enemies, depending on where you're at in the book of Isaiah, are either surrounding them, attacking them, or have already conquered them. Right? So there's, there's no good moment for these people. It's a very hard time, very scary time for them. But, Isaiah, but God calls on Isaiah to speak truth into the lives of the people of Israel. And what we see is that as Isaiah speaks truth, there's kind of two themes that come up. One of judgment and one of redemption. And you may have noticed that even just in our text today, right? We just read, we read an entire chapter of Isaiah, way to go. Uh, and, and you may have noticed that the, the, the first five verses, it's kind of like, whoa, pretty harsh. It's God crushing his enemies. And then the last three verses, there's some more crushing of enemies. And so there's, there's this idea of judgment. But I don't know if you caught it in, the, in, the, in verses six through nine. Isaiah paints this beautiful picture of what he calls the mountain of the Lord. And he paints this beautiful picture of redemption, and that's really what we're going to focus on today mostly is verses 6 through 9 because he, he paints this picture of hope. This picture of hope that Isaiah paints is not just for the people of the Old Testament, but it's actually for us now. It's for all people. It's, it's our hope as Christians now. That's the picture he paints. And so as we unpack this text, we're going to see three things about what the Christian hope is. So first of all, we're going to see what the Christian hope is. Secondly, we're going to see why we need it. And thirdly, we're going to see how we get it. What the Christian hope is, why we need it, how we get it. And uh, as we get into this first point as to, to what the Christian hope is, I do want to throw a quick disclaimer out there. Um, as I unpack what we see in Isaiah, what Scripture tells us the Christian hope is, uh, for some of you, just given the context that we're in, uh, this will be total refresher, no-brainer for you. For others of you, given the context that we're in, this may 
shake some of your thoughts, shake some of the beliefs that you maybe have about what the Christian hope for the future is, about what our, our deep desire is for the future. And so if that's you, if that happens, and we'll get into this in a little bit, I just want to tell you, that's fine, okay? Talk to me about it. Shoot me an email, shoot me a text, stop by Roasters, I'll be there. Don't just stuff it and get mad, but talk to me about it. Uh, that's what we do as the church, right? Can we do that? We all on board? Excellent. Okay. Not enough nods. All right. So uh, anyway, so what is the Christian hope for the future? Well, we see this in verse 6 right off the bat. Um, Isaiah 25, verse 6. He's speaking about what it'll be like in the age to come. In the age to come. And he says this. On, the, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And so let's just remember the context that Isaiah is speaking into. He's got the, the, the nation of Israel. They're divided. Their enemies are in the process of destroying them, taking over their homeland. And Isaiah in verse 6 says, Hey, I know things are tough now. I know it's a mess right now. But a day is coming. There's a day in the future in which the people of all nations, the redeemed of all nations, are going to be together. We're going to drink good wine. We're going to eat good food. He says, that day is coming. And see, what's he talking about? What is that day? Well, it's what we would call the end of the world, or in the shockingly accurate words of REM, the end of the world as we know it. Um, and uh, he, he's talking about a day when God's judgment is going to fully come on the earth, when he's going to do away with his enemies, and when he's going to set the world right once and for all. And see, the people of Israel are suffering but Isaiah says, listen, a day is coming when God's going to make everything okay. A day is coming when the world will be as it should be, when all nations will be together and we'll drink good wine and we'll eat good food and we'll celebrate the life that God has given us. And see, that's our hope too. That as Christians, that's ultimately what we're looking forward to. That there's a day when God is going to come and he's going to set the world right that the things that are broken are fixed, that the things that are wrong are made right, and we're all going to come together and celebrate the life that God has given us. And see, this is super important for us to grasp. And this is where we may start rubbing some people, okay? Because this text, Isaiah 25, verse 6, this, this picture of what the future looks like, of what the end of the world looks like, is contrary to a popular belief that has plagued American Christianity uh, for several decades. And that belief is this, that God's plan is to annihilate the world and rescue us and take us up to heaven, right? There's a movie that just came out about this, Nicolas Cage, right? Um, but here's the truth. God's plan for the world is not to wipe it out and take us away to heaven, but his plan for the world, what we see in scripture, is that heaven would invade earth. That God comes and his presence fills earth and sets things right. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. And, uh, and see, this is important for us to get, and I'm going to get on our soapbox here a little bit, because this shifts how we view all of Scripture. Here's what I mean. Um, a few years ago, when I was in college, I was, uh, so, oh, like 10 years ago now, I, I was working at a camp, and, uh, and while I was working at this camp, I got a, a, a really bad staph infection. Uh, and it was called furunculosis. Uh, and since that's a, a very hard word to say, uh, the staff that I was working with at the time decided to call it gabies, uh, which I really appreciated. And, um, and so the, the way it chose to manifest itself was through these 
It's really gross. These like oozing sores on my leg and on both my legs. And I was like, oh, I'll just ignore it. Maybe it's poison ivy. I'm working at camp. And I just kept working. And I just got to this point one day where I was like supposed to go play basketball. And I was just like, I can't really move my legs. Like I, they, they just aren't moving anymore. And so I thought, well, I should probably go see a doctor. And so, uh, so I did. And, and the doctor, you know, diagnosed, oh, you've got furunculosis and uh, gabies. And I said, all right. Now, and then he prescribed a cure. Now, can you imagine if this doctor said, hey, listen, you've got this disease. I see what the issue is, and we got to stop it from spreading. we got to stop it from going any further. And the best way to stop this disease from spreading is if I throw you into a fire and kill both you and the disease. I'm going to find a different doctor, right? But see, the story of Scripture is that God made this world, and he made it good, and that sin came in, and it messed things up, and it's broken, But God's solution is not to chuck it out. His solution is to heal it. His solution is to bring a remedy. So our hope is not to be raptured and and taken away. That's a theology that was made up in the early 19th century. It was popularized in the 1970s by a a book called uh, The Late Great Planet Earth and again in the 90s by the Left Behind series. It's a blip in the radar of Christian belief. It's a blip in the radar of Christian hope. The, the Christian hope throughout the centuries and is now and forever is not that the earth is destroyed and we escape to heaven. No, the picture we get in scripture is that heaven invades earth and that through Jesus Christ, God fully brings about his healing rule and reign. That's the hope. And so look, we're not spending eternity floating around playing harps. Look at what Isaiah says we do. He says we're going to eat good food. He says we're going to drink good wine. He says all the nations are going to come together. We're going to, we're going to hug and be hugged. That's the future. We're going to dance. And that the redeemed of all nations will be together. Like this is our hope. And it's a good hope, right? I mean, are not the best parts of life the most basic parts of life? And it's not just a pie in the sky, by and by hope. It's actually a living hope. It's a living hope that matters and it's a necessary hope. So point two, we need it. We need it. Look with me at verses seven and eight. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And don't you like, love that line. Like He will swallow up death forever. That's just a powerful line. And see what Isaiah is showing us in that line is is a reverse of the curse. That in Genesis 3, humanity falls into sin. And God says, hey, listen, I'm the source of all life. And because of your sin, you've, you've separated yourself from me. And so he says, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. In other words, the curse is everything dies. Everyone is going to die. That's just reality. Death always swallows life. But what Isaiah says here is, is that's not forever. That's not forever. That one day, the God of life, the source of all life, will swallow death. And that'll be done. The great enemy death will be defeated forever. And as my, my son's children's Bible says, and everything sad will come untrue. And see, we need this hope. 
We need this hope because as human beings, we're hope-filled creatures. We're hope-filled creatures. The way you live now is dictated by what you hope for your future. Your present is controlled by what you think your future is. A pastor friend of mine explained it this way once. Two men both did something, got arrested. We're going to be thrown into a dungeon for 10 years, hard labor. 10 years, hard labor. And before they get thrown into this dungeon, uh, one man finds out that his wife and his children are dead. They're not there. The other man finds out that his wife and his children are alive, and they're going to be waiting for him on the other side. So they both go in, the same exact sentence, serving the same exact time, but they have two very different experiences, right? They go through that very, very differently. The one man who doesn't have his loved ones waiting for him more than likely withers away, loses his motivation, and dies. The other man who knows his loved ones are waiting for him on the other side, even though it's hard, even though it's brutal, he presses through. Do you see why the hope we have for what God is going to do is necessary? Because see, if, if we don't have that, then all we have is this life. That's it. And then when you die, you rot. And if we really think about that, eventually what that means is anything you ever did, anyone you ever loved, anything that you ever experienced won't matter. That one day the sun is just going to burn up the earth and we're going to forget about Shakespeare and we're going to forget about Bach and that's just the end of the story. None of it's going to matter. You see, if God doesn't swallow up death forever, if the Christian hope isn't actually real, if it isn't actually real, that's what we're left with. And some of you may say, okay, pastor, right? I don't believe any of that stuff and I'm doing fine. And I don't have this weird cosmic hope for the future that you're talking about. I'm doing fine. Can I tell you, if that's you, you're actually just not being intellectually honest enough to face the truth. I know it's really harsh, but that's just the facts. You're not being intellectually honest enough to recognize the hopelessness that results from a life without a future hope. Look at the great thinkers of our day. Read Nietzsche. Read Camus. Read David Foster Wallace. They're all three philosophers that lived at different times and in different places that weren't Christians. And they all were intellectually honest enough to recognize, oh my gosh, nothing matters if there isn't something after this. See, life without a future hope becomes meaningless, but we see life with one enables us to go through incredible hardship. We look at the early Christians. The early Christians... <laughs> they sang songs of praise to Jesus as they were covered in pitch and lit as human torches because they knew the hope that awaited them. They prayed for forgiveness for their enemies as they were thrown in front of crowds of people and torn apart by lions because they knew of the hope that they had in Jesus because they knew of this mountain of the Lord that Isaiah speaks of. How you view your future dictates your present. Present's controlled by what you believe about your future. The early Christians died with such peace and such grace that it actually caused the Christian movement to multiply exponentially. So much so that the church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. 
It's just a fact of history. These are just people that faced hardship and went through it with this hope that we're talking about today. But we don't even have to go that far back in history. We can just go a couple centuries back. Uh, this past summer, I was, I was blessed uh, with the opportunity to do uh, some work as an adjunct professor at, at Concordia University. And uh, I taught uh, a course on the, the history of American Christianity. And for one section of the class, we looked at African-American spirituals. And uh, these were these songs that, that were written uh, when, when African-Americans were, were enslaved in America. And they're some of the greatest songs in American history, and many of you know them. Uh, but they have these, these powerful images of the future life. It's about the, the kings, or the, the robes, and the crowns that we're going to have. And it's about Judgment Day, and it's about all this sort of future stuff. And it's these beautiful words, but there's this critique out there uh, that says, you know what, those songs, man, it's a shame. It's a shame that they wrote those songs because when they kept looking to the future and they kept thinking about this hope that, that Isaiah talks about here that we're talking about today, it allowed them to continue to be oppressed by the slave owners. It allowed them to become complacent with their difficult circumstances. Uh, but I was listening to this uh, brilliant African-American theologian, uh, Howard Thurman, uh, who responded to this creek by, critique by essentially saying this. Actually, on the contrary, he says that for the slaves, this hope for the future, this hope helped them face this incredibly cruel environment in which all the facts said hopelessness, despair, right? Can you imagine generation after generation thinking, my kids aren't going to get out of this. This kid isn't going to, and then they'd be told, this is all there is. That's hopelessness. But because they knew what God was planning to do, they said, that's mine. That's where I'm headed. That's where the true hope is. That's what I'm looking towards. As Howard Thurman says, I'm going to quote him directly here. He said, it enabled them to fashion a hope that their environment with all its cruelty could not crush. It enabled them to reject annihilation and affirm a terrible right to live. Now listen, we don't face the sort of persecution that early Christians did. We certainly don't face the cruelty uh, that went on in our country 200 years ago. But each one of you does have your own troubles. Right? You have things that eat at you. You have things that chip away at you. You have things that weigh you down. You've got them. And as the harsher realities of life hit you, what you believe to be true about the future will absolutely shape how you face your present now. It's just a fact of history, right? I just gave you two examples of people who have had this hope, who overcame things much greater than anything we'll ever have to face. And so how do we get that hope? You're like, all right, I'm with you, Gabe. How do I get that hope? Look with me at verses 10 and 11 in our text. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. So Isaiah says here, he's talking about Judgment Day, and he says, hey, listen, God's going to come, and he's, he's going to lay down Moab. He's going to trample Moab. And Moab, uh, in this particular uh, section, just represents the enemies of God. It was a specific ancient nation, but right here, it just represents the enemies of God. And so what Isaiah is saying is, is when God sets the world right, when he makes things the way it should be, there's going to be folks that aren't on the right side of God. There's going to be folks that, that face his judgment. They're not going to take part in his feast. And the text is pretty clear. God's judgment will come. These folks will be trampled down. 
And that's a scary thought. And so we say, well, well how do I avoid that? It's very uncomfortable. How, how do I avoid that? How do I fix this? And see, as human beings, our, our default is to say, all right, well, God is good, and God's going to come and set the world right, and so if I want to be on God's side, I better just do good things right now. Better just make myself really moral. Do a lot of religious activity, figure it all out, be on the right side of God all the time. Do you know what happens with that kind of ethic? If you become the sort of person who's certain they're doing the right sort of things and other people aren't doing the right sort of things and God likes you because you do the right things, what happens to that person? They become self-righteous. They become prideful. And in verse 11, God makes pretty clear what happens to the pride, to the prideful. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. In other words, Isaiah is trying to get us to see that you can't fix you. He's trying to get us to see that you can't get yourself on the right side of God's judgment. That you can't gain the hope of of life everlasting in which we drink good wine and eat good food and, and hug one another. You can't get there by your own efforts. You can't earn it. You can't get it done. You can't get on good God's good side. You can't do it. And so how do we get it? How do we get this hope? Look with me back at verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. See, you get this hope, you get this salvation when you recognize that it doesn't come from you. When you recognize that it's his salvation, it only comes from him. You get this hope when you recognize that God has done all the work for you to receive this hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God has done everything for you through the death and resurrection on Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the perfect son of God, would go to the cross and he would face God's judgment. He would be laid low. He would be trampled. And he would do it in your place. And his blood would cover over you. So that means when God comes to judge, when he comes to lay the, 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 the prideful low, your judgment's already passed. Jesus covered it. Your check's already cleared. You're forgiven. You're good to go. And it also means that you get to enjoy the life that God gives to us as he swallows up death forever. When you see that Jesus' resurrection is a a foretaste of your resurrection. That as you trust in him, that as you join your life to him by faith and in baptism like we just saw with baby Elsa today, that you share in the victory of the hope of resurrection. That death doesn't have the final answer, but Jesus does. Jesus beat death. Listen to these words from Romans 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. So how do you get this hope? 
Simple, simple, simple. You believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. You trust in Jesus' work for you. You join your life to his because he gave his for you. Let me close with this. Um, so as I, I mentioned at uh, the beginning of, of this message, uh, I'm coming back from doing this funeral uh, for, for Aunt Kathy. And, uh, and Aunt Kathy was, was this incredible, incredible woman. I just want to share with you a little bit about her. Uh, she, first of all, was like the best hugger in the world. And uh, I know my mom's here. You're number two, okay. But, uh, but, um, but, but Aunt Kathy was was the best, and, and uh, the reason why is she's, she, was, she was built like a Midwestern woman, which, which means she, she had what we call a winter layer, and, and, so, um, <laughs> and, so, and so when you'd hug her, man, she would just like bring you in close, and, and you just like escape from all the troubles of the world, and it was just like this, this it was just the best, right? And, and so that would happen, but not only was she just an incredibly loving woman that way, uh, but she was also incredibly generous. Uh, she, in fact, over the course of the last couple of years, uh, gave this church, the reason we're gathered here, several thousand dollars uh, to help get us started. And, uh, and she would do it. It was so cool. We'd go up there, and she'd always pull me aside, and she'd say, hey, Gabe, you know, here's a check, and it'd have numbers on it that I've never seen. And, well, that's great. Thank you. And, uh, and, and she said, hey, this is for your church. You give it to your church, and, and just keep going. I believe in you. I believe in what you guys are doing. And so that was Aunt Kathy, and she'd do that for us all the time. And, and so when Melissa and I went to, um, to leave for Wisconsin, many of you were very kind, and you sent me texts or emails, and you said, hey, uh, let Melissa know uh, that, that we're praying for her and we're sorry for her loss. And I thought, you know, it's very nice. People are, are concerned about Melissa. But I said, and I've just told you guys, what about me? Like, I was Aunt Kathy's favorite, you know? Like, that, that, was, that was how I felt. I was like, you know, I was, I was her favorite. So then I get up to Wisconsin, and I start talking to Melissa's brother and all her cousins. Come to find out, they all thought they were her favorite too, you know? And, and, uh, and that was just the sort of love that she had, that everyone thought they were her favorite. And so I sat down with Kathy's mom, uh, Melissa's grandma, and I said, hey, uh, as we go to do the funeral service, uh, do you have a, a scripture in mind uh, that, that you would want read for, for Kathy? And she said, 1 John 4.19, didn't skip a beat. We love because he first loved us. She said that was, that was Kathy's life. She loved because he first loved her. So friends, like, do you see that in Jesus' death and resurrection, that that's God's first loving you? That that's, that's God giving you hope, giving you life. And then it's our opportunity to respond that we see the love God has for us, that in Jesus' death and resurrection, we're given a living hope. You're given a living hope that says death isn't the end of the story. You're given a living hope that says God is going to swallow up death forever. You're given a living hope that says one day we'll be with all the saints who've gone before us. You'll be with all the saints who've gone before you. And we'll be together and we'll be drinking good wine. So if you grew up in a tradition that didn't do that, it's going to be really awkward when that day comes, right? And, and we're going to eat good food. And we're going to hug one another. And I'm going to hug Aunt Kathy. She's going to hit me for talking about the winter lair. It's going to be a good day. We have that hope because Jesus first loved us. Because of his death and his resurrection. So please, place your hope in Jesus. Place your hope in what God has done for you in him and what God will one day do for this world through him. And then let that hope shape your life today. 
If you all please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope you give us. That whatever struggles we face, whatever hardship we're in the midst of right now, that you're at work. And that one day everything that is sad will be untrue. That we'll be gathered together with all the saints who've gone before us. We'll celebrate the life you've given us. Teach us to always place our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.